Welcome to the ATS podcast, Careers in Genomics. In the past 20 years, human genetics as a field of research has boomed and given us novel insights into the nature of human disease. Despite this explosion, the field is technically and analytically challenging, but at the same time, rapidly changing and evolving. This leaves many of us, including myself, sometimes to wonder, how does one get into this research or a career in human genetics? So today we're fortunate to have a panel of human genomic researchers who have successfully navigated through many of the challenges of reaching a full-time research career in respiratory genomics. So yeah, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Craig Hirsch, who is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's an associate professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. And his research uses um, tools for clinic clinical epidemiologic, genetics, and genomics research to understand COPD phenotypes and treatment responses moving towards precision medicine for this heterogeneous disease. I also have the pleasure of introducing um, Dr. Blanca Himes, an associate professor of informatics at, at UPenn. Um, her lab uses biomedical informatics and multiple omic approaches to better understand complex respiratory diseases, um, including asthma and responses to asthma drugs or pharmacogenomics. I'm Vic Ortega. I'm a pulmonary physician and PhD trained genetic epidemiologist at the Mayo Clinic. Um, I'm a professor of medicine whose research interests have included looking at rare genetic variants and genetic ancestry um, as it relates to disease severity and response to drugs and asthma and COPD. And my name is uh, Matt Ball. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician at Brigham Women's Hospital and uh, instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. Uh, my research interests include genetic risk prediction and leveraging omics for personalized therapies in asthma and COPD. So today our podcast will focus on questions related to the journey our panelists have taken in respiratory genomics, and hopefully by the end of the podcast, our listeners will have a good idea of the necessary steps they can take to start to establish themselves. So I'll start uh, at the beginning career decisions. Um, so when did you first think about genetics and genomics and, and, and really how did it all begin? Um, why don't we start with Dr. Hirsch? Yes, thank you, uh, uh, Matt and Vic, for hosting this podcast. Um, so when I was a pulmonary fellow, I became very interested in COPD, specifically the, the heterogeneity in the disease, like uh, was mentioned in the introduction, seeing patients with different symptoms and different treatment responses. And, and I was initially interested in using uh, traditional epidemiology and statistics to, to understand this. And I sort of happened into a research group that had traditionally been a respiratory epidemiology group, but had recently shifted into genetics and, you know, quickly learned that genetics and genomics would be a, another tool in, in the armamentarium to start to understand, you know, the questions that I wanted to answer about COPD heterogeneity and, and pharmacogenetics. So sort of happened, uh, a little by interest and a little by chance. Great. What about you, Dr. Himes? Yeah, so I'm um, a little bit of a different approach than you guys because I'm not a physician. I obviously am a PhD researcher. Um, so I became interested in genomics through bioinformatics and while I was in grad school. And as an undergrad and at the beginning of grad school, I thought I was going to do imaging research. I mean, I was doing imaging research, so I thought I had a career in imaging. But I remember in the early 2000s listening to a lecture by Zach Kohane where he was talking about these gene expression microarrays that had just been developed. Um, and it was just such an exciting talk. And I thought, wow, here's such a cool technology. We've never been able to look at gene expression across, you know, all genes that were known at the time, or most of them at least. Um, and, and sort of this promise of this new field uh, seemed very exciting to me. I was already sort of interested in genetics, but it was especially that sort of um, 
um, large data, large scale approaches to, to study uh, human genes that I found exciting. And so um, he, this person, Zach Kohane, um, happened to be the director of a brand new bioinformatics program that was forming um, within the grad program that I was in, which was the Harvard MIT Division of Health Sciences and Technology. So I asked him if I could join. I thought it was too late because, you know, I had already sort of differentiated myself, but he uh, welcomed me into the program. And so from there, I started to take this approach to learn more about genetics, gene expression, machine learning, sort of all these things that um, we we hear about a lot these days. So yeah, pretty different paths to the same place. Um, so that's, that's interesting to hear. Um, could, could you tell us more about the mentors or other people in your life that were critical to, to driving or developing your career choice goals uh, um, and or trajectory? I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be a traditional scientist. Um, people can have different experiences that inspire us in, in very diverse ways. So um, what about you, um, Dr. Himes? Sure. So besides um, Zach Kohane, who I just mentioned, who obviously was sort of welcomed me into the program, so very clear um, sort of decision into research. Um, there's just been so many people, right? I think um, we sometimes take for granted that we put one or two people down as like the mentors, but the truth is we learn so much from all of the people around us as we're training. And one person that I'd like to give credit to that really made a difference was my undergrad mentor. Um, so even though I didn't end up doing imaging, um, I worked with Martin Paulus. And, and I think that's sort of like an early stage where people are thinking about research or medicine, and maybe you're not entirely sure, sure about what path to take. But at the time you sort of take for granted that, oh, this is what people do they help you. Um, but I guess most of us, as we've gone through many years in academia, realize that um, there is a little bit of chance about who we run into and, and who can help us along the way. So um, he certainly taught me so much about basic stuff like the scientific process, how to write papers, um, just was one of those persons who's like, oh, you're good at this, you can do it. And, and at the time it felt like, oh, I am. Um, so so yeah, I, I really credit that person, even though he will never, he'll, he'll never put me on his um let's say his NIH forms, right? Because we usually have to report like who our trainees are, but we we are focused on grad students and postdocs. The NIH doesn't really credit people for uh, mentoring at other stages, but but all of those um, mentorships I think are um, extremely valuable. So I, I really like to pay that one forward um, to the younger students and trainees that I come across. What about you, Dr. Hirsch? Um, well, I think I have to give a lot of credit to uh, Dr. Ed Silverman at, at Brigham and Women's, um, who was my a mentor when I was a research fellow and sort of got me interested in, in genetics, like I mentioned before, and it, it continued to collaborate with him throughout my career. Now he's actually our uh, division chief, so I, I can't avoid his mentorship, whether I like it or not. Uh, but I, you know, I also benefited from the, the strong history and tradition of respiratory epidemiology um, at Brigham and Women's, including mentors like uh, Frank Spizer and, and Scott Weiss, who um, understood the role of genetics um, and how it can be integrated with traditional epidemiology. And I also think there's a really important place for peer mentors. Um, and you know, I've been fortunate to work in a division with a lot of people interested um, in genetics and genomics at, at all different levels. And I think it's it's great to have people who you were fellows with or uh, just, you know, who are junior faculty when you were fellows to, to bounce ideas off and get sort of day-to-day uh, -day and, and real-time uh, advice from as well. It, it's interesting how you both, um, you know, highlighted both formal and informal mentors and people who have been really, you know, generous and giving to you over the years. Um, so... Yeah, really, you know, for me, I feel like it does take a village to train and get people like Craig, Blanca, myself, you, Matt, to do what we do because we deal with complex human 
traits and characteristics, and then we have to apply those complex traits and human characteristics to to data, to large, highly variable data sets, omic data sets, and technology and informatics, and you know, so so it really does mean it does take. A, I feel like it does take a, a, a village and. And and enthusiastic mentors. I think that the folks that Craig and Blanca mentioned are were, are highly enthusiastic mentors, and and I, you know I totally understand um, the the feeling and the sentiment to pass it forward. Yeah, yeah. So so what I wanted to ask is how what you guys think is important in terms of the the importance of the institutional environment and how I mean how has that played a role in your career development? And I'll start with um, from Dr. Hirsch. Sure. Thanks. I, I think the institution is, you know, very important. And obviously that's, you know, those of us writing NIH grants know that's an important part of the um, the, the scoring criteria. I, I think both in terms of the overall support and interest in genetics and genomics, especially in, in clinical divisions that people may be in, um, the connections you make with, with people um, who are either in the field or have ideas um, and more tangible things like data sets and computing resources are obviously uh, needed for this, but a lot of intangibles, just sort of the, the institutional knowledge and the knowledge of, of people and the, the connections that, that can be made, um, you know, usually happen at your institution, but can happen um, elsewhere as well. So I, I think the environment writ large is, you know, very important for, for this role. Uh, thank you. Um, Dr. Himes? Yeah, absolutely. It's extremely important. I mean, that just can't be emphasized enough, um, especially for the type of research that so many labs, including genetics and genomics lab do nowadays, right? You just absolutely need a lot of resources and chances are as a trainee or as a junior faculty member, right? You're not going to come in with all of this equipment and computing resources um, through the front door. So if your institution doesn't have that, right, like that can really change um, how how your career um, sort of goes towards or, or what goals you are able to achieve based on what is around you. Um, that being said, right, like make the most of the resources that you have. If you're at an institution that doesn't have all of these very large things, that doesn't mean you can't participate in these, but it's it's absolutely something to keep in mind. Um, um, intangibles, I completely agree with um, Craig there, um, Dr. Hirsch, absolutely there's some things that won't be reported on paper, but that are extremely important to you as you're developing. Um, maybe one thing is a business office. Um, sometimes we take for granted, right? Like part of our living, um, or we make our living based on writing NIH grants, right? If we don't have a good business office that can help us with that, or if we don't have resources for that, especially when you're writing your first grants, things like that can sort of put a wrench in your plans or slow you down. It, again, nothing is something that you can't overcome, right? But it's just nice. The more the wheels are greased across the board, um, you have friends at work, so to speak, right? Like they don't have to be your best friends or your family, but um, having collegial relationships just goes such a long way. I think, and Craig and the mentorship talked about peer mentoring, like absolutely um, peers. And, and when I was in the same lab as Craig was years back, right? Like the peers just made all the difference. Um, sort of sharing with you um, things about grants, things about papers, like how to write a cover letter for this journal, for that, you know, there's so much institutional knowledge that can be passed along um, through peers and the other people around you that, that you'll never document in your NIH grants, but it's absolutely something that um, makes a difference in, in how, how you can succeed. Yeah. So, you know, one of the goals of this podcast is to, is to reach out to a broader audience. You know, there's so much great, there's so many great resources out there. There's a lot of data, there's a lot, so much to be done. 
Um, and we, you know, we wanted to make sure that, you know, other people could see and learn about the path. And we've, you know, many of us have been fortunate to have been in outstanding institutions um, and to develop the skill sets that we have to be where we are today. Um, that being said, not all people who will be listening to our podcast will would have access to the vast resources that are required to store and analyze different kinds of omics data sets. Um, do you know of people who have succeeded through strong collaborations with outside genomic scientists? And what do you what do you guys think about the role of cloud solutions, um, Dr. Hines? Yeah, that's a that's a really tough question. And, and if I'm honest, I don't know a lot of cases. Um, I'm not going to mention any particular names. Right. But but in the early days of genetics, I think it was easier because we didn't realize just what kind of sample sizes, for example, we would need to answer these questions. Right. And it's not just in genetics. Let's say it's in I would say it's similar in epidemiology. Right. For a junior person to say I'm going to conduct an epidemiologic study for many years, a prospective study. Right. Like it's it's really tough to start that from scratch if you're not in an environment that um, already has. So, sort of stakes in the ground in one of these areas. Um, that being said, you do want to differentiate yourself, right? And so I think for um, um, maybe junior people, the best solution can be to be part of a, a larger effort or have connections with a larger effort, but then be very creative and think about what's missing. Um, what are the areas that, that maybe a lot of people aren't working in? Because there still are a lot of needs um, all across the board, right? There's needs clinically, there's needs in research. And um, you can start being creative and, and thinking about how you can forge your own path um, based on what's already sort of on the ground and um, certainly learn from what's already there. In terms of um, cloud-based solutions, I'd say here in the U.S., they're, in my experience, they're still a bit limited, right? Like there is a lot of effort to try to put things in the cloud. But, but the truth is, if you're just an outside collaborator and you just put in a proposal to try to join one of these things, it's... It's pretty challenging um, on many levels, right? On getting to know a data set, on figuring out like what's what exactly is in the cloud and what can I do with it? Because um, you haven't even seen the data. I'd say an exception to all of this is, is the UK Biobank. That is a data set that truly, I'd say any trainee anywhere in the world who has a legitimate research question could just go in, download the data set. You have to pay a little bit of money, but um, you, you can try to be creative with that data set and have a lot of clinical and phenotype information, um, very detailed as well as genomic data. Um, but, but I don't think the equivalent in the U.S. exists, at least um, not yet. Um, that being said, right, you can do a great project with UK Biobank, but again, you have to keep in mind if you're a trainee, you have to start thinking about what's my career going to be, right? And chances are you're not going to write an NIH grant focused on the UK Biobank alone, unless maybe you're a methods person. So you still have to keep in mind that even if you can use some of these cloud-based resources, um, what's, what's the area that you can develop and, and sort of take a career um, um, steps towards achieving something that maybe takes a little bit more than just using some cloud-based resource to answer a few small questions. All right, um, Dr. Hirsch? Yeah, I think like you know, all of you have said, this type of research requires collaboration and one person can't be expert in everything. I mean, obviously to do human genetic epidemiology, you need domain experts, experts on the disease, uh, people who are experts on enrolling patients and phenotyping, people who generate the omics data, people who analyze the omics data, people who develop new methods, you know, it's, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I don't think any of us on this call or any um, one practicing in this area or any trainee can, can reasonably expect it to be an expert in all of those. And I think the important thing is find out what 
your niche is, just like Dr. Himes mentioned, what your area of expertise is, and, and an important skill is to learn enough of the language of the other areas so you can engage collaborators. So, you know, if you have, if you're able to generate data, then how do you bring in the data analysts? If you're a methods developer, how do you find people with with the data? And, and you know, making those connections is really the key. Um, and, and, you know, the projects I've been involved with, either large consortium or smaller projects, we've done this some, sometimes in the same institution and oftentimes, you know, across multiple institutions to get all those uh, pieces together to, to really get a good analysis or a paper or, or a grant, for example. No, thank you. Those are valuable insights, for, I think, for the people listening today. I mean, know your skill sets, know what know know what you want to do, what makes you unique, and and a very strong emphasis on reaching out because um, none none of us here work in an island. Um, we work in very large collaborative groups to get the, to advance the science. Um, no, thank you. That that's really outstanding insight. Um, so the next thing I wanted to, to ask about is, you know, a lot of some, well, some folks are going to be listening in are going to be um, trainees who are earlier in their careers um, who who have been told to have this um, this five year plan that we all hear about that kind of floats around this term. Um, I'm really curious to know what you all what, what your all's insights are or thoughts are on the, this this five year plan that people talk about. Um, um, Craig, what do you think? Yeah, I know. I thought this was a it's it's an interesting question, and you know, I initially thought, oh, I've I've never had a five year plan. I've I've never done this. But then, you know, really thinking about it in a little more detail, um, the NIH grant cycle sort of force us into a four or five year time frame, especially in, in the trainee starting to think about writing a, a K grant. You're you're writing a five year plan right off the beginning, and that's for your research direction, your future directions, your your career development and, and mentoring. Um, so I think that's something we're sort of naturally forced into. And, and then as you grow your research program, you have to you're starting to write R01s and thinking about, you know, on similar time frames. So I, I think it's it's almost in the background, but it is important to kind of know where you want to get to. And, and I I don't, there's a quote, and I think it's attributed to Bill Gates, but it's been attributed to basically everyone else's that, you know, was it people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in, in five or 10 years. So I think really having that that vision to the future and, um, you know, especially at the this stage of a K grant, knowing what you want to do and then what are the, the educational and career development and research steps um, to, to get there is really important at that early stage in your career. Thanks. Blanca, what do you think? I can say that as a trainee, when people would ask me that, it would stress the heck out of me because I was like, I don't know what's going to happen in a year. I feel like uh, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, at least in the life of some trainees, right? Um, your your life is usually on a one to two to three year cycle max. Um, but it's absolutely true that once you start writing grants and stuff, you have to start thinking of this longer time frame. And, and there is a shift in how you think about things there, right? Um because it's that's one of the things that is tough to, to judge when you're writing your first K, your first R01 is exactly what can I do in this amount of time? Like what's realistic? And and anyway, so so yeah, there's there's part of that whole um process. But but yeah, taking a step back as a trainee, I would say 
just think of slightly long-term, right? Like have some kind of plan, but it doesn't have to be like in five years and, and then just be so specific that you, you know, absolutely can't achieve it, right? Like I'm going to recruit this many people. That's kind of the plan that you put in a grant, obviously, like that has to be realistic. But in terms of your own life, there can still be a lot of uncertainty, right? Will I stay in academia? Will I only do clinical practice? Will I, and those decisions can just change so quickly, especially with the way the world goes today, right? And so I would say absolutely just think think long-term to some extent, right? Because what you don't want to do is just be so laser focused on what's going on in your immediate surroundings that you don't have some vision for what's going to happen. So your vision doesn't have to be completely established, but I would just say the, the, the message there is like, take time to pause and reflect about what you're doing and where that's going to take you. If you're not doing the things that will lead to a grant, then you're not going to get a grant. If you're, you know, whatever career or whatever plans you sort of have, you have to start working towards that. And so taking regular time to just um, make a plan that is beyond the day-to-day tasks that you're doing of, I don't know, filling out your medical records, um, doing chart review, analyzing data, like all of that is important day-to-day work, but you, you, you do need that time to, sit and reflect, whether it's on a five-year time frame, 10-year time frame, or even um, shorter. Oh, that, that's that's outstanding advice. You know, we're all working hard day to day, but to just have an eye to the future, uh, you know, and, and where, where are we headed? Where am I headed? Where are we all headed? You know, whether it's through the K or then the five-year plan along different kinds of topics and research you know, fields and the different R1s and R, that, that we could come across later in our careers. No, thank you. That's that's really solid advice. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I agree. As a junior person, it is really um, both of you kind of point out that uh, you don't you don't think a lot about the five year plan when you're really junior, um, and understanding that there's going to be a shift later in your career is super important. Um, and so, while we're on the topic of um, people early in their career, if you could go back in time um, to to when you were a postdoc or a junior faculty member, what what advice would you give yourself, um, Dr. Himes? That's another tough one. I I I think the best that I can come up with is just to keep doing what you're doing um, because sometimes it's easy to question yourself as a trainee, right? Of like, is this the right thing? Should I be doing something else? Because I feel like there's still such a world of possibilities that maybe we shut down some of the possibilities as we go further in our career, which doesn't mean we couldn't switch things. But as a trainee, I feel I think it, it just feels like there's more possibilities in the world. And so it's easier to get stressed out about, am I doing the right thing? Um, and if you're not doing the right thing, then that should be like, obviously something that you listen to. But um, if if you're just like uncertain, because people telling you things and you keep, I don't know, you keep reading Twitter and everything seems very doomy, um, then then don't let that get to you. Just keep doing what you're doing. If If what you are doing seems like the right call for for your life. What about you, Dr. Hirsch? Yeah, I think if I went back to my um, fellowship, I, I think taking the time to really learn things that are, I don't want to say not directly related to you, but are a little bit out of your, your comfort zone. So I'll use the example I was, you know, as a physician I'm, and learning epidemiology is very comfortable with the, the epidemiology and patient enrollment and, and phenotyping. And I, I wish I learned a little bit more about computer programming, obviously not a problem for Dr. Himes, but just knowing that, you know, to, to have more depth in a, another field to be able to better understand what collaborators are doing um, and communicate well with the collaborators. So, so spending some time learning, you know, what you're, you know, obviously you're doing your fellowship, you're learning whatever your primary focus is, but 
things that are, uh, I don't want to say tangential, but a little bit on the, on the outskirts of what you do on a day-to-day basis, when you have that time and protected time as a fellow to really learn those um, as well, I think would really, you know, greatly advance both your collaborations and, and your own research program. Well, I think that the, that's really helpful advice from from both of you. You know, what one to focus on on things that are meaningful, and and um, two to diversify yourself away from your your own um, narrow narrow focus. Um, so I think that's really helpful. Um, so, how, how has the ATS affected your career growth and development? So I'll I can start, Matt. So I, I was thinking back when I was a um, research fellow when my first year going to ATS meeting, when Scott Weiss said, we're starting a new section on genetics um, and genomics. You, you have to come to this meeting. We need as many bodies as, as possible. Um, so I, you know, I've been, I guess, from day one involved in the ATS section on genetics and genomics. And I, I think it's been a, a really valuable place to find your, your home at ATS, find like-minded people who are, who know the value or interested in the value of genetics and genomics um, and, and as a junior person really meet some of the leaders in the field um, and I and, you know keep talking about collaborations but I think that's you know an important way to, to develop collaborations and then just on, on a more informal level at the annual meeting and at the, the different events uh, that are run by the ATS and this the section genetics and genomics to, to meet other people at your own career level, other trainees who are doing genetics research and bounce ideas off them or say, oh, this person has a cool method and I have a, a data set and how, how can we work together to do that? Or this looks like an interesting idea. I want to do this in, in my research. So, you know, I always leave the, the annual meeting with a, a list of different questions that I want to try to answer with my data and then a list of people I need to, to follow up with. Um, and, you know, I don't always make it through that list, but you know, it gives me a lot of energy um, coming back from that that meeting and, and new ideas and new people, and, and it's definitely led to some collaborative papers and, and even grants um, going forward. What about you, Dr. Himes? Yeah, I mean everything Craig said, um, and I will say though that as a PhD researcher, the first couple of times, not maybe two, three times that I attended ATS, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? Why am I here? This is a whole bunch of physicians. Um, everybody's wearing a suit and a tie and I don't fit in with um, this crowd, but but I'm glad that I gave it a chance um, because everybody there actually care. Well, not every, obviously the ATS is so large that not all of us are doing the same thing, right? But, but the point is that there is enough people doing enough things that you should be able to find a community there of people who care about the same things you do, right? Um, and once you find that, then you just like, it's irreplaceable. Um, so, so yeah, it's everything Craig said, right? It's an opportunity for people to give you feedback on your work. You listen to others, especially as a trainee, you just get so inspired and, you know, you just see there's so much more going on than, than what you see immediately around you. And you get to meet people from all over the place. And, and of course it's been years now. So, um, I've been on several ATS committees. And so now it's easier to say like, here's my proper involvement and I can list things on my CV, right. Of how I've been involved. But, but even without that documentation, there's just a lot of intangibles that you get out of being a member um, when you put a little bit of effort into it, that, that absolutely makes it um, worthwhile. So um, yeah, you just gain friends too, besides work, right? Um, it just becomes literally your community of people who care about um, similar things and have similar uh, work goals as you do. 
Wow. So it sounds like the ATS has been really, really important to both of you. Um, and um, so uh, kind of, you know, looking looking forward now, I mean, both of you have come a long way since starting early and, and joining the ATS. Um, but um, what, what were some of the points in your career where you realized that maybe you achieved a major stone and, and maybe you thought, well, you know, I finally made it. Um, so, um, or are you still kind of waiting for that moment? So, uh, Dr. Himes? Yeah, I don't think I really had such a, like an instantaneous moment, but I think I also stopped waiting for it a long time ago. Um, cause I think early in your career, you're like, aha, I will graduate and that will be the thing. And then you're like, my, will publish my paper. That will be the thing. And, and these things sort of come and go, but then you realize that, that those aren't, it's not like you win the lottery, right? Like you do a lot of work and many years can go by into each of these things. And so I think like by the time the actual moment is there, like, of course you try to celebrate. And I have, I like many other people are maybe bad about that, right? Because by the time you graduate, you're already on to the next thing, right? Like you've already made your decisions about what's happening next. Um, by the time you get your promotion, right? Like you've been putting in paperwork for so many years that then, it, you know, it sort of takes away some of the excitement that maybe gets when that you should feel when you have tenure that being said it's a relief um <laughs> don't get me wrong to pass through these yeah. milestones but I don't think I ever reach a milestone and I'm like aha I've reached the pinnacle um I I just think there's always going to be something else um to do and so so if anything we just have to try to like pause and um take time to maybe appreciate that we have come a long way um because I think a lot of us are just set towards like I need to do like something you know um we're sort of goal driven and once a goal is is passed you just let it fly by and and you and you have plenty of other things right like there's never going to be a point where where you can just say i've achieved everything that i could possibly achieve what about you dr hirsch yeah i think that's uh, that that's an interesting question and there's a lot of milestones and promotion and field that that, that were mentioned i i think one thing that just stuck out for me is when you make those long-term plans and when they finally work out well for you is is really been a you know a, a few you know a, a proud moment and I think you know one concrete example is I you know early in my career I, I knew I was interested like I said in, in COPD and using these large population studies and in, in genomics and and wanted to do uh, blood gene expression profiling in different COPD gene different COPD studies and clearly had many reviewers saying you can't do blood gene expression in in a lung disease and um, fortunately had some support from uh, uh, several program officers at NIH one even said you know we're going to give you this funding you better you better prove us wrong or you know prove these reviewers you know, wrong and I, I think you know now with with my um, Co-PI, uh, Pete Castaldi, you know, we've generated RNA-seq in, in over 4,000 people in, in COPD gene. And I, I hope we've proved people wrong that, you know, we, we've done a lot of good research in that field and um, sharing that data set so more people can can use that, um, showing that, you know, th this idea I had just more, well more than five years ago, probably closer to 10 years ago to, to use blood for this is, you know, is actually reasonable and, and it's and, and it's worked out, um, worked out okay. Um, and, you know, I think the other part of it that, uh, uh, you know, I forget which mentor um, told it to me is, you know, it's, it's great to have a home run. It's great to have the paper in New England Journal or Nature. Um, but most people's careers are built on just one single after another, you know, one paper, get one paper published, get the next paper published, get the next paper published. And, 
um, you can make a really nice career that and do all the research that you want to do and be very fulfilled without that uh, without that glamour moment, I guess they they say. So I, I think the the importance is, you know, keep keep have your convictions and keep plugging away until uh, you get to that point. Well, well, I think, you know, that sounds like really great advice um, from from both of you. And, you know, the it sounds like there's always more to do and more interesting things, which may be one of the really fun things about about a research career, of course. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah, I mean, if I feel like in what we do is we, we 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 look at that milestone and then once you get to that milestone, that milestone begets multiple milestones beyond that and then just kind of grows and grows. Um, and, you know, and I like Blanca's, you know, approach there. It's not this one major milestone, but several milestones throughout the course uh, of a career. And I think that, and this, some of this isn't mentored into us, you know, because I mean, some of the, how we deal with those successes and always necessarily mentored to us. Like, I think the mantra is I got my first R1. Okay. What's the next R1? You know, that, that is the, that is the general mentoring advice that a lot of us get. But I think what, I think the more the, the the more modern realization is also when do you look back and reflect? How do you celebrate your? How do you look back and celebrate without resting on your laurels? Celebrating with your family or those that have been around you and have endured the nights and the weekends. How do you do that? Um, and then push forward again. You know, then Monday you push forward. So, um, so, you know, so, you know, you know, and, and, you know, it's, you know, our family inspires us, um, the people around us inspire us, you know, um, so, it, you know, it does take a village to make, you know, successful careers um, in this. Um, but I do want to say, you know, other things that inspire us are the breakthroughs that we see in the sciences, um, the things that happen around us in science, particularly in the genetics of respiratory disease, which is a booming field along with other complex diseases. So what are some of the sentinel breakthroughs in the genetics of pulmonary disease that you've found the most inspiring, Craig? Yeah, so I think, you know, putting my hat on as a, a clinical pulmonary physician, I think the treatments for cystic fibrosis um, have been just truly remarkable. And, and I think it's also important to note that, you know, it, it took more than 20 years from the, the identification of the CFTR gene to you know, modulators in the, in the clinic and the multiple generations now to, to really transforming the care of, of this disease, which, you know, it, it may be a disease within our, um, you know, my practice lifetime that goes from uh, this horrible progressive disease to sort of a chronic disease like um, hypertension or what, you know, similar to what, what the progression with, with HIV um, with, with the treatments for that. So I think that's one, you know, real win for for genetics but also understanding the time frame and then you know i think the other part of it that's just amazing and and i often say this is you know i, I always try to see what the oncologists are doing and then then how we can translate that to, to what we do and you know lung cancer and, and every cancer now is is it has completely been transformed by genetics um and, and treatments for different um, genetic variants, different expression levels in, in the tumor, and, and no one's just uh, treated for, you know, leukemia or lung cancer a- anymore. It's it's so much more detailed and, and specified. So it's someone who's interested in disease heterogeneity, kind of looking for how the oncologists have used genetics to really 
get to disease mechanism, subtype disease, and then match that to, to therapy. And I think if we can do a tenth of that in benign respiratory diseases would, would really be a, a tremendous breakthrough. Thank you. Um, Dr. Himes? Yep, uh, those are some great ones. And I, on, and sort of like another um, angle, I wanted to bring up this asthma hit that it, like all of you guys know about. And when I say hit, I mean um, the first asthma GWAS finding, which was published back in 2007. And it's sort of a low key paper, I would say in general. Um, uh, there was sort of a locus discovered on 17Q21 and a relatively small sample size that um, was associated with childhood asthma. And lo and behold, 15 years later, that is still like the most prominent asthma association. Um, there have been multiple studies by multiple groups, both genetics, but also functional studies to try to understand what gene uh, candidate or maybe it's two in this region are associated with asthma and, and exactly how that variation leads or contributes to childhood asthma and that's still not understood um, so I, I first the first lesson that I take from that is um, be early with your technology right because um, this was the first asthma GWAS and so presumably if anybody with a decent sample size would have discovered this finding first, not to detract from the people who actually published this paper, it was great for them, but it, it is very interesting that so many people have been able to replicate this finding over the years. Uh, but it, on the other hand, it's also interesting to note that we still don't know. And it's like what Craig was just getting at, right? It can take so many years. And so it may go from like, oh, we know this associated region and maybe it does this or that to there may actually be a treatment or there may be some major breakthrough in what we can do for patients um, once we really understand how this variation contributes to asthma but but it's still an incomplete story and so it's sort of humbling to see how many years and how many people can be involved in one of these things to actually um, come up with the quote-unquote sentinel breakthrough right um, a, a few things can happen almost instantaneously but most are sort of this longer process yeah, thank you. I mean, I think the general theme is, yeah, I mean, we do these large GWASs and have found great things and they are breakthroughs, but breakthroughs in the realization that we have so much more to figure out because the total heritability attributed by these variants, especially in adult disease, uh, looking at COPD and adult asthma, is there's still so much more to do and that that inspires us to continue looking and looking into multiomics and going away from DNA variation and and really challenging. These things challenge the field as we continue to try to figure things out. I think in cystic fibrosis, the breakthroughs have just been remarkable and it would just, and, and in cancer, um, to see breakthroughs like that and in more complex benign diseases, you know, that that, that is the hope and what inspires us, I, I, I would agree. Thank you. Um, so this this probably relates somewhat to the question, the, the answers or, or your thoughts on the last question, but what do y'all think of the role of genetic analysis in the clinical care of a patient? Um, Blanca, what do you think? Yeah, me as the non-clinician, but I will say that Craig is absolutely right. So he, he touched on the two areas where I think um, genetics maybe plays more of a role in the clinic now, which is rare variation, right? Like genetics is widely used to um, study and also to diagnose rare diseases or even to find treatments um, or, or to apply treatments based on maybe some mutation that somebody has. Um, similarly in cancer, right? Like we can um, say you have this mutation, therefore you have this subtype and potentially there can be a pair treatment in um, lung cancer and other um, cancers. Um, but I would say it plays less of a role in, in common pulmonary diseases at this point. And so again, that doesn't mean that we don't do these genetic studies because 
chances are we will, these will eventually be fruitful and there will be something at the point of care that comes of it down the line, um, even if there is none yet. So I think right now there, the gap still is between this finding of these associations and then figuring out how, how do they contribute to developing a, a condition to making it worse? Um, how do they interact with all kinds of other factors that are really difficult for us to take into account? Um, but I'll stop there because I know Craig has prepared <laughs> himself very well for to answer this question. Sounds good. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to put on my clinical hat again, and, and obviously Blanca said that that was not her, her field, but, you know, part of my clinical practice, I treat patients with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which goes along with that, you know, rare variant, um, large effect in a clinical disease. And we have very good testing for it that is dramatically underutilized in the, in the respiratory community. And it's estimated that only about 10% of alpha-1 patients in the U.S. are, are actually diagnosed. So I, I think even when we have good genetic evidence and a importance for prognosis, treatment, family screening, we have to think about how, you know, how, how we raise awareness and, and how we do the, the implementation. And I think that's, you know, an important role for the ATS, the section in genetics, genetics and genomics, and, and trainees with an interest in genetics and whether they go on to a career in genetics or um, a career in clinical practice or both, but that, that understanding of the importance of genetics and how we implement tests we have, and then what's the next test to develop. And I think before the podcast started, we were chatting about, you know, all the, the great genetic work that's been done in pulmonary fibrosis. And, you know, hopefully that will be something making it into the clinic in, in the future um, as well. But it seems like there's, you know, a lot of reluctance there. So I think it's important for, for those of us on this call, those of us who, those of you who are listening to this podcast to really, you know, think how do we push the envelope forward into developing and implementing genetic tests in, in respiratory disease. And, you know, how, how do we be like our oncologist colleagues where genetics is just something else they do. It's a routine order, just like, like everything else that they do. No, I agree that that's one of the great challenges of what we do is we, we have such a deep understanding of genetic epidemiology, how, you know, how we do analysis and we understand the limitations, but also the promise, but then how do we communicate that to a more general population where, you know, the clinician, clinician population we have, you know, the depth of the depth of training they get in terms of understanding genetics and the genetic outputs and what, what we see from testing, you know, you know, is limited just because, you know, because this, these advances, I mean, are, are, are rapid through, right? I mean, when we all started, we were only looking at candidate genes and then the first GWAS came out and now we're doing whole genome sequencing and we're doing multi-omics. It's such a rapidly developing field. And I think that, you know, I think um, Craig and Blanca have been you know, among those who've been champions of trying to communicate, you know, these breakthroughs and how do we try to implement them into our practice, implementing him, you know, Craig into his own practice, but then, you know, how do we communicate it so that, you know, the promise of what we're learning um, can be distributed and we can advance not only the science, but clinical care and outcomes. Um, it's definitely happening in CF and cancer, no doubt, but, but you know, in other, other fields, asthma, COPD, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, even how we look at um, um, predictions of lung function, you know, why people have their variations in lung, just basic human characteristics. You know, how do we understand that better with what we're learning through, through, through genetics? So thank you. And I really appreciate y'all's insight there. That's, that's outstanding. 
So um, yeah, thank you both for for being here. This has been great. Um, I I think I have I have learned a ton. Um, we do a, we do have one more question for you. So um, are you ever able to sleep or take a vacation? I like this one. No, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but what do you what do you do um, when you're when you're not writing or or or, or analyzing data or, or doing other research activities? I'll go first. Um, so I will say that when I was in grad school, I did try that experiment of, oh, I'm not going to do anything in my life other than um, study and do my research. And I think at some point I decided like I shouldn't take a shower because that would detract 20, that would take away 20 minutes of my day. Um, and then I suddenly realized that I was losing my mind and that was kind of insane. Um, and and I, I don't know, I guess I adopted that because I started to notice that a lot of people around me were just bragging about never sleeping and working nonstop. And, and, and I don't know, I guess I learned, I, I, I have watched many people do this, right. But at some point you just realize, or most of us realize that that is, just ridiculous. And so, so yes, you have to, for your own sanity and for the sanity of all of the people around you, including your family and community, you sort of have to have breaks or do whatever. If, if you are literally one of those persons who never needs a break, then good for you. But most of us need to do something else. Um, we do need to eat and take care of our souls and whatever else. Um, so, so I, my, what I do exactly has evolved over the years. I do have kids. I realize that doesn't mean that I don't some people have kids and never see them, but I actually spend time with my kids and um, that's very important to me. So I, I that's one of the folks, things that I focus on um, when I'm not actually working is just being a part of their life. And I guess for my own sake, I practice yoga that helps me stay sane and sort of cope with the world. But I've done other types of exercise. Yoga maybe is convenient. I don't know. I, I really appreciate it. And I like the fact that it was developed by people maybe who um, were living in caves. And so I feel like that's a little bit of our life right now, right? Um, we don't need a lot of equipment and space to do it. So at some point I thought that that was like a great um, thing to do for our routine, but but that's just me. I would say everybody find, find whatever it is that um, can help you stay sane, um, some type of exercise or uh, other pastime. Yeah, and, and similar to, to Blanca, I think spending time with family has been really important. And, and that's what, you know, for those who are listening, who are deciding between clinical and research careers, I think a, an obvious advantage of a research career is there's a lot more flexibility in your your time. Your, you know, even if you're doing clinical work, you're, you're you know, less call schedule, less call, um, and more time to spend with your family. You know, a lot of the research we do is behind a computer. You can uh, shut down your computer, go to your kid's school play and, and come back and your computer will still will still be there. Um, you know, so I, I think there's a, a lot of um, advantages to research career with family and, and also similar to Blanc, I think, you know, physical activity and exercise is really important. Um, I, I don't do yoga. I, I enjoy swimming. That's the way that I clear my brain and, and not think about numbers and uh, statistics and uh, uh, genomics for, for an hour in the morning uh, when I have the, the time to do that. So yeah, I think it is really important to do something to clear your head. And then, you know, oftentimes after after that kind of break coming coming back, you're, you're more focused and able to sit down and really do your, your research. So I, I think there's work-life balance is especially important in the, the times that we're in, in now and at, at every level of training, you know, and, and career is, is an important component. 
Well, you know, thanks for for sharing about how you balance all of this stuff. And I think, like you said, about work-life balance is is really uh, obviously people are understanding more and more how important that is. And I think in the in the modern world, we recognize the importance of resting our brain and walking away from problems and not just trying to to grind all the time. So, um, so you know, again, um, thank you for for being here. And um, on behalf of the ATS um, section on genetics and genomics, we, we want to thank you um, for for really sharing your experience um, on how to build a research career in respiratory genomics. I hope uh, everyone listening today has been able to gain some insight into how their experiences could help uh, guide your own journey into human genomics research.